Well, she knew that she would not sleep a wink that night. It's always hard when you're a mom and you hear every noise that your little baby makes, but this night was going to be especially tough. The man lying next to her, he could sleep through anything, especially the baby's noises. But she sensed that tonight would be a night that he might not sleep either. So much was at stake. Their family, their freedom, their future. That night they'd eaten and eaten and eaten until it felt like they just could not eat anymore. And it was kind of a special treat that they got to have roasted meat. That didn't happen very often. And even though they ate like it was a feast, it didn't really feel like a celebration. Because so much was at stake. Their family, their freedom their future. As she laid there and tossed and turned, she couldn't stop thinking about that baby boy. She loved him so much. He was growing so fast. It seemed like just moments ago he was born and then crawling and then toddling around and now it just seemed like he ran everywhere he went. His grin was on fire, just bright and brilliant and his laugh was contagious and his eyes sparkled when he smiled. He was her firstborn son. What would happen to him tonight? Would he make it? So much was at stake. Their family, their freedom, their future. Well, the man next to her was most definitely not asleep. He stared at the ceiling and he just kept worrying about his wife and his son and how it would go that night. And yet, on the other hand, he was cautiously optimistic. Maybe this crazy plan might work. Maybe this would actually lead toward the kind of rest and the kind of freedom that he longed for after what was a lifetime of toil and slavery. So much was at stake. Their family, their freedom, their future. Could this plan really work? I mean, it seemed crazy to think that their whole lives depended on smearing some blood from a lamb over the doorpost. But that's what Moses had told them to do. He said, listen, the Lord is going to come tonight over every house in Egypt and every house that is not covered by the blood of the lamb, every firstborn will die in that house. So they followed the plan carefully and they hoped and they prayed that somehow when the Lord passed over, he would pass over them. So much was at stake, their family, their freedom their future. Well, good news is the plan worked. (laughs) Because that night the Lord did come over every house in Egypt and every house that was covered by the blood of the lamb he spared. Every house that was not experienced mourning and crying and pain that night. And it was through that mighty act of release, that mighty act of setting the Israelites free that they were released from the bondage of slavery and set into a promised land. And that Passover night became the thing that the people of Israel forever would look back on as their moment of salvation. It was the defining mark of the Hebrew scriptures. They looked back. And yet that Hebrew celebration of the Passover also pointed ahead. And it became the reality that would allow all of God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be free if they would look to the true Passover lamb and be covered under his blood, Jesus Christ. And that is the theme that we pick up here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's the theme that Paul is writing about. It's the theme that he is celebrating. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, so much is at stake. And we pray now, God, that you would give us open hearts and open minds to be able to embrace the good news along with the devastating bad news that we have to believe if we're going to ever experience the goodness of this news. God, would you, would you sink in to us today what it means that in him we have redemption through his blood? Would you open our hearts, open our eyes, give us faith to believe that and to trust that and to be shaped and changed by it, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, in this series, what we've been doing in this first part of our book of Ephesians, our study, is we've been comparing the glorious gospel to this big, beautiful house. What we've said is that Paul is saying, hey, there's this glorious house that every Christian gets to live in. And then what we're doing is going room by room and looking at all the specific details that are part of this glorious gospel. The, the house is introduced to us in verse 3. If you have your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. There Paul says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We said that this is a Trinitarian blessing. Father, Son, and Spirit are part of this. This is something that has happened and that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the big banner that flies over this whole section. We've said this is just one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And in the following verses, we, go into, we start to go into the rooms. So we went a few weeks ago into this room in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We said, you know what? God chose us to be his. Before time began, before we'd done anything good, before we'd done anything bad, not on the basis of our good works and not on the basis of any foreseen faith, God chose us. Paul continues that theme as he says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We don't just know God from a distance, and we don't just know God as a judge or as a king. This says that we can know God as a father, adopted into his family. And that's what we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks. And now we pick up in verse 7. And, and here's what I want to tell you. Verse 7, just on its own, if all you ever looked at was verse 7, it would blow your mind. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic. But this is, this is significant, because I know some of you over the last few weeks, as we've asked you to, to kind of let us begin the conversation, not end it when it comes to election and predestination and, and, and things like that, some of you are still really wrestling with that. And, and one of the things that I think you're going to see today, as we look at this, is that today is going to show you why we needed God to intervene. Why we needed God to act first. Because if left to us, what you're going to see today is we would not respond to God in faith. We would not put our trust in Christ. We need his initiating grace. And that's what we're going to see in this passage here today. So there's really two points today. We're going to see that we're shackled by sin and that we're set free by substitution. Shackled by sin, set free by substitution. First, we're shackled by sin. We're imprisoned to sin. We're enslaved to sin. Look at what it says there in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. What does the word redemption mean? I feel like if there's one verse that we understand as a church, it ought to be this one, right? We're called Redemption Church. Like, we should get this one right. 
What does redemption mean? Well, here's what it means. It means release from a captive condition, deliverance, set free. Right? Sometimes you just think of redemption being like a synonym for salvation or a synonym for, for grace or something. But, but it has a very specific meaning. It means release from a captive condition. Deliverance, set free, right? So the people of Israel were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. And similarly, Paul is borrowing on this language, right? He, he, actually, this whole section is really borrowing on God's relationship. That before the foundation of the world, God chose Abraham. And in the Exodus, God calls, people his, calls Israel his sons. And now we get to have that blessing. So all these blessings that were promised to Israel are now coming to the people of God and the church as well. And this is significant. We are enslaved to sin. How do we know it's sin? How do we know that's our bondage? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So listen, the main thing we're enslaved to is not our circumstances, it's not our job, it's not our family, it's not some bad communication patterns or some bad habits of behavior. That's not the main thing. The main thing is our sin. Because when we're set free, when we're redeemed through his blood, we experience, as it says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We know what trespassing is, right? There's a sign usually that says, no trespassing. And you go, I wonder what's back there. And you go anyway, right? That's, that's what sin is, right? Sin is God has established boundaries. We break them. God has said, I want you to build your life on me. We build our lives on other things. God has said, I want you to find ultimate joy and delight and satisfaction in me. And we find ultimate joy and delight and satisfaction in everything but him. That's sin. And the scripture in this verse and in the rest of scripture declares we are slaves of sin. We're shackled by it. You go, gosh, that sounds extreme. That sounds harsh. Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in John 8. He's having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he answers them and says this, truly, truly, I say to you, that means, hey, I'm not kidding around here. This is a big deal. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's strong language, right? You don't just get out of slavery, right? No one goes to a slave and is like, well, just get out of it. It's like, okay, if you think that, you don't understand slavery. You have to be released. You have to be redeemed. Someone from outside has to set you free because you can't free yourself. You're a slave. And Jesus says we're slaves to sin. Now, now what does that mean that we are slaves to sin? That's what I want to take a few moments and explore because we have to get this to understand the, the beauty of what Paul's saying here in verse 7, that in him we have redemption through his blood. Well, what, what, is our, what is our enslaved condition? Well, here we have to look at some other passages of Scripture to understand what it means that we're slaves to sin. So I'm going to show you five different things from a number of different verses in the New Testament that help us understand what it means that we're slaves to sin. The, the first thing that it means to be a slave of sin is we sin by nature. We sin by nature. We sin naturally. We build our lives on things other than God naturally. We break the rules naturally. We live selfishly and for ourselves naturally. Here's what Paul, the same person who writes Ephesians, he writes this in Romans chapter 5. Here's what he says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men 
because all sinned. We said a few weeks ago that now we're in Christ by faith, but before that we were in Adam, which means Adam was our representative. Adam was our kind of figurehead. And when Adam sinned, there's a sense in which we all sinned with him. And because of Adam's sin, we now inherit a sinful nature. This is why, get this, this is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Because it demonstrates Jesus did not inherit a sinful nature like we did. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, free from a sinful nature, but not us, because we have fathers, and they spread sin to us, and so we are sinners by nature. Now, if you don't really believe that, um, I'd like to give you a tour after this of the two-year-old classroom, just right down the hall. And uh, if you're still not convinced, I know lots of parents of toddlers that would love to have a date night, and we could arrange for you to do some babysitting. That, I think, would show you, right? Because you look at the two-year-olds, and no one has to say, hey, 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 don't share. When you get something you like, just say, mine, right? No one has to teach a kid to do that. No one has to teach their kid to hit their sister. No one has to teach their kid to lie. No one has to teach their kid to live for themselves. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. It comes naturally. We're not a blank slate where it just depends on, well, what's the environment? No, no, no. We are sinners by nature. We sinned in Adam, and his sin passes down to us. But here's the second thing we have to see about slavery to sin is that we also sin by choice. We don't just sin by nature. We sin because we want to, right? Nobody uh, looks at a person who isn't their spouse with lust in their heart and goes, well, I don't like that. I didn't mean to do that. We might kind of back up and go, gosh, what am I doing? That, that wasn't the right thing. If you spend money that you don't have and you go into debt, you did it because you wanted to. When you just can't help but lash back at the person that critiques you, it sure feels good. Now, you might after the fact go, gosh, what am I doing? That's not the kind of person I want to be. But in the moment, it felt good, didn't it? See, some of you, you wish you could think quick enough to zing back. You actually don't, trust me. We sin by choice. This is what Jesus says right after the great verse about how God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe but would, wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Here's what he says. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You go, well, why is it that you would be condemned just for not believing in Jesus? Well, here's why. Here's what Jesus says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we can't sin and say, well, God, you made me do it, right? This is what we try to do, right? This is what Adam tried to do from the very beginning. After, he and Ad after Adam and Eve had sinned and God shows up and God says, hey, Adam, what happened? And what does Adam say? He says, well, God, it was the woman that you gave me, right? What's he saying? He's saying, it's, it's your fault, God. You did this to me. No, 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 no. Because when you actually read the account, what you see is that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise. And so she took of the fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Why? Because it looked enjoyable. We sin because we're sinners, but we also sin because we want to. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. You can see the slavery that we're in. The hole is getting deeper. The, the, the shackles are getting tighter. 
Here's the third thing that it means that we're slaves to sin, is we suppress God's truth. Despite the fact that we sin by nature, despite the fact that we build our lives on everything else but God, that we love the darkness and the light, despite that, God still pursues us. God still reveals himself. God still comes near. And yet we are in such deep bondage to sin that even when God tries to get our attention and tries to reveal himself, we still stuff it down. Think about it like this. God is broadcasting himself through his creation, through his word, through his son. He is making himself known like a TV signal, right? His TV signal is beaming into your home. But apart from Christ, without the intervening grace of God, just on your own naturally as you come into the world, without without any intervention, that signal comes to your house. And what you do is you go, I don't like this signal, and you turn down the volume. I don't want to hear that. And God keeps beaming it through and keeps beaming it through. And you go, you know what? I I really don't like this. I'm going to change the channel. And you change the channel. I got got to get away from this God thing. That's our natural condition. Paul describes it this way. You can kind of see this picture in Romans chapter 1. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, God's showing himself, God's revealing himself, but we turn down the volume, we turn down the channel, we suppress the truth. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, you watch the world around you, it's got a creator. It's got a God, right? You go watch a sunrise. You watch a baby be born. You go to Sedona. You watch Planet Earth documentaries and you see how these things work. I mean, you study science at all and you go, this didn't just happen. God reveals himself. God's making himself known. God is showing himself and yet we suppress it. We don't want that. Because of that, it says we're without excuse. Paul continues, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory. They changed the channel. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We love the creation, not the creator. Why? Because we're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice, and therefore we suppress God's truth. Why? We're slaves to sin. We're in bondage. We're in shackles. Here's the fourth thing. Because of this, we cannot accept the things of God. Right? We're suppressing the truth. We're exchanging the glory of God for other things, and we can't on our own, apart from Christ, apart from the intervention of God, we can't accept and enjoy and appreciate spiritual things. Right? There's all these things that we hear, there's all these things that God tries to get our attention with, and we, we just, it, we can't hear it. it. It's not that we don't have permission, right? Jesus says, whoever would believe won't perish and have eternal, but will have eternal life. Jesus said, why do you, why do you labor and, and come to me, experience rest, come. Right, this invitation's open at all, but the reality is not everybody can respond to it because we can't without the intervening grace of God. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says the natural person, again, that's the person just on our own as we, like our default setting in the world, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Get this. This is not saying that natural people are stupid. Like you tell them, hey, Jesus died for your sins, and they go, what's died mean? Right? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is they don't appreciate it. They hear these things of God, these things of the Spirit of God, and they go, oh, that's folly. That's stupid. You may, maybe, right? Maybe, like I, I know a number of people who go, well, yeah, I mean, if that works for you, great. Like, okay, Jesus died for you, yeah, whatever. If that helps you in some way, great. I'm not interested. I don't, I mean, I don't care. Other people are much more combative. <sighs> really? You're going to put your hope in a guy who died? You believe the Bible and all the stories that happen. I mean, a lot of people are more combative. But either way, on our own, without the intervening grace of God, we just don't appreciate it. The, the cross is foolish to us. But when God intervenes and he opens our eyes and our hearts, now this thing that was foolish now becomes the wisdom and power of God. That's how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. What's the end result of all this slavery to sin? It's that we deserve death. We deserve death. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people go, you know what? I, I don't know about all this God stuff. I just want to stand at the pearly gates someday, and when I, if I have to face God, if there's a God and I have to face him, I'm just saying, you know what, God? Just give me what I deserve. You don't want that. According to this, you don't want that. Because the wages, what you deserve, what you've earned, what you've worked for by building your life apart from God, by rejecting the things that God has tried to reveal to you, by suppressing the truth, by exchanging the truth about God for a lie, what you've earned for yourself is death. You've chosen a life apart from God. And God says, I'll keep giving it to you. You can have eternity apart from me, eternity apart from anything good, eternity with nothing death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, listen, we're slaves to sin. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. We suppress the truth. We can't accept the things of God. And we are on our way to death unless something, someone intervenes. We are in bondage. We are enslaved. This is why, and, and, and I want you to listen closely here, this is why I don't embrace the notion of free will. Now listen carefully, hang with me. We make real choices, absolutely. We make real decisions that have real consequences. We experience the blessing for good decisions, and we experience cursing for bad decisions. We experience real choices with real consequences. But listen, we do not have free will. Why? Because our wills are in bondage to sin. I, I know what, when people, meet, when people say free will, what they mean is real choices a lot of the time. But I think the phrase is actually very unhelpful and confusing because what it suggests, here's what it suggests. It suggests that we have a will that is not under any influences from anything else. But think about it. What is our will under the influence of? 
Sin. By nature, by choice, this is who we are. Apart from the intervening grace of God, we are sinners. Our will is not free. It is in bondage. Listen, there are only three people in human history who have truly had free will. Adam, Eve, Jesus. Everyone else has inherited a sinful nature. Everyone else's will is in bondage. And so we may choose freely, but those choices are not under, they're not absolutely free. We make real choices, real consequences, and they're constrained by real dynamics. Here's how Martin Luther described it. He's the great reformer. He said this, free will without God's grace is not free will at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot turn itself to good. Do you see that? We're in bondage to sin. We're slaves to sin. We need something to change us. We need something to awaken us. We need something to give us a new desire that we don't have because we're, by nature, sinners. And so my favorite illustration of this, and and some of you have heard this before, uh, many of you won't have heard this before, is, is the illustration of the vulture. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that in the back of the room, there's a vulture. And this vulture is mad and hungry. He has not eaten for a week or more, and he is really, really hungry. And here's what we do is, is that vulture, you know, we kind of have him tied up back there, and we actually get two bowls. We go to the original chop shop, and we say, make the nicest, greatest, best salad you can make. And they get this huge bowl of all this delicious salad that, you know, we would just, oh, that'd be great. And then we get this other bowl filled with raw hamburger. We say, all right, vulture, you can make a real choice. Choose whichever one of these bowls you want. Ready? Go. Which bowl's the vulture going to? Which one? The hamburger. And nobody would go, oh, he'll probably go to the salad. No, he won't. Now, what if we go, well, you know what? That was just, you know, that was a one, that was just one vulture. Like, maybe we need a bigger sample size. What if we get another vulture? Which one's he going to? The hamburger. What do we get 100 vultures? How many are going to the hamburger? 100. Why? Because by nature, vultures want meat. Now, he could have chosen the salad, but not really, right? Like he had permission to go to it, but he didn't have the ability. Why? Because he was enslaved to a vulture nature. So here's what needs to happen if he's going to eat the salad. Someone needs to reach in to his little vulture heart and give him the heart of a deer. <laughs> change his heart. Change his heart. And now he'll want the salad. Like, and listen, this is actually how God does it. Ezekiel 36 says that part of the new covenant promise is that God will reach in and remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Because apart from this intervening grace of God, we won't choose God. Why? Because we're slaves to sin. But the good news of this passage is that even though we're shackled by sin, we are set free by substitution. We are set free by substitution. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That comes through Jesus. Listen, this is why Jesus had to come, because we could not free ourselves. We could not loosen our bonds to sin without the intervention 
of Jesus. And the way that Jesus intervenes is through substitution. It's redemption. Do you see it? Redemption through his blood. He experiences the punishment that we deserve. He's our substitute. And this is how God sets us free in Christ, is Jesus is our substitute. Now, how is Jesus introduced in the Gospels? Like, what are the ways that we kind of first experience his ministry? Well, there's a number of different ways if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I want to talk about two, two of the things that are really significant about how Jesus is introduced in the Gospels. The first way that Jesus is introduced, he introduces himself as the great emancipator. There's this incredible scene in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus goes to his hometown and he goes to the synagogue where he probably would have gone lots as a kid and he, you know, he's been traveling, he's been doing other stuff and so he comes and they say, hey Jesus, do you want to read something? And they hand him a scroll from Isaiah and he reads this quote and this is, quote, this is in Luke 4 but it's a quote from Isaiah. Here's what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he takes the scroll, and it says that he rolls it up, and he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And do you know what he says next? He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the emancipator. I'm the one that sets people free. I'm the one that gives liberty. You are slaves to sin and slaves to the results of sin, and I'm going to set you free. And then through the rest of Jesus' ministry, the way he sets people free is by becoming their substitute. Think about all these different people that Jesus sets free. Matthew mentioned the leper earlier, that, 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 that we all are, are, have this spiritual leprosy, where there were people with real leprosy, these, the skin disease that your skin would just waste away and decay. And as a result of being unclean like this, the lepers had to live outside the city. They had to walk around and say, unclean, unclean. And one of them asks Jesus, I want you to make me clean. And Jesus reaches out. And touches him. No one had touched this man in years, probably. Because they thought if you touched him, you'd become unclean. You'd catch his uncleanness. But Jesus touches him. And the man catches Jesus' cleanness. And he's made whole. How is it that Jesus could do that? Well, not just because he's doing some you know, Jesus miracle thing but because he's actually going to, on the cross, become that man's substitute. Where Jesus is crucified, where? Outside the city gates. Crucified by the Romans who had made him unclean. Jesus cleans this man by on the cross becoming unclean and cast out. Or think about the demoniac, this amazing story in Mark chapter 5, this man who had been cutting himself with stones and had been tearing off all of his clothes. He'd been bound with chains and would break these chains, and he's hanging out in this weird spot around the Sea of Galilee among all these tombs and all these graves, and he's just naked, and he's crazy, and Jesus comes near. Jesus says, what's your name to this demon-possessed man? And the man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
And he begs that Jesus would cast these demons into the pigs. And Jesus does it. And the pigs go over the cliff and destroy themselves. And this man who once was broken and beaten and naked, at the end of the story, he's clothed and in his right mind. Why? Why is Jesus able to do that? Because on the cross, Jesus becomes his substitute as a legion of demonic activity attacks him and as he is crucified naked and exposed so that that man could be clothed. Think about the woman with the issue of blood. This woman that had been bleeding for 12 years and went to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. Some of you know what that's like. Nobody had an answer. Nobody had a diagnosis. Nobody had help. And yet in the midst of this huge crowd one day, she sees Jesus and she just reaches out and she grabs the hem of his garment, just thinking, if I just get this close to him, maybe, maybe I'll be clean. And in fact, this power goes out from Jesus and her, her bleeding stops. Why was that able to happen? Because on the cross, Jesus would shed his blood for her to be healed. Or think about Jesus' friend, Lazarus. This close friend that Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died and Jesus weeps and Jesus cries and he shows up at the scene and and Lazarus' sisters are there and they say, Jesus, if if you'd been here, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died, but you weren't here. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he calls to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And this dead man comes out of the grave. Why was he able to do that? Because on the cross, Jesus would take his place and go in the grave. Listen, Jesus is the great emancipator. And the way he emancipates, the way he gives liberty is as a substitute. This is why the second way that Jesus is introduced in the Gospels, we see from, uh, in the Gospel of John, from John the Baptist. John sees Jesus walking by, and here's what he says. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is Jesus? He's the great emancipator, and he's the Lamb of God. Now, if we went down to Santam Mall and just started telling people, Hey, believe in Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. They'd go, Okay, are you a farmer? Like, what do you, lamb? Like, what, okay, what, what's that mean? But if you said that to people who understood the story, whose lives had been defined by that Passover moment when the blood of the lamb had set them free, and you said, Jesus is the lamb of God, what would you be saying? You'd be saying, he's the true Passover lamb. He's the one that sets you free. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. Think about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was a substitute. Either the firstborn dies or the lamb dies and the firstborn lives. Jesus is the true Passover lamb that God gave so that if we would be under the blood of the lamb, we could be redeemed, set free, delivered, forgiven. So much is at stake. Your freedom your future. Are you under the blood of the Lamb? If you are, this is a day to rejoice. This is a day to celebrate. This is a day to thank God, to say, oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? And to celebrate because he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He set you free. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, listen, 
I want to warn you sternly that the Lord will not pass you over unless you are covered in the blood of the Lamb. It's your blood or His. Will you turn to Him? Will you renounce your allegiance to yourself, your allegiance to sin, and will you instead turn toward Him in trust and faith? Would you by faith apply the blood of the Lamb over your life so that you too could be redeemed according to the riches of His grace? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for setting us free through the blood of Jesus, our true Passover lamb, who gives us a new nature, who gives us new choices, new desires, who allows us rather than to suppress the truth, to be living in the freedom of the truth, who allows us to see what was once foolish and crazy as now the very wisdom and power of God, who instead of us getting life or getting death gives us life. God, we thank you for that. We pray now that we would be covered by the blood of the lamb. I pray that as we come to this this communion meal, this reenacting of the Passover, that we would find that our only hope is the blood of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.